Job chapter 14. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 6. The word of God says, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him. Leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. As we continue to examine Job's words to his friends and in here to God, we see that he's on the edge of despair. Everything has been taken away. His health is fading. And worst of all, it seems as though God is not willing to rescue him from his troubles. And so, feeling abandoned by God, surrounded by his friends whom he dubs miserable counselors, Job's cynicism really stands out here in chapter 14, as well as other portions that we've seen. It seems in this section, chapter 14, 1 to 6, that Job is basically saying that because God has limited man's days, there's nothing man can do about it. Life is just filled with troubles, and there's nothing more than this. Job is saying, this is all. So leave me alone. God, just, just let me live my life. And this is the cry of many in our world today, isn't it? Not because they share the suffering of Job, but because they have drawn the conclusion that this life is all that there is. There's nothing going on behind the scenes. There's no eternity, no afterlife. Just look around. What you see, this is it. Nothing more. And so today we turn our question to this. Is this all? Are they right? And I think how one answers this question is a matter of living for this life only versus living for the world to come. It's a matter of finding meaning and purpose in life versus having a cynical, defeated attitude about life. It's a matter of prioritizing God versus prioritizing yourself. It's a matter of living in a fatalistic hopelessness versus living within the hope of something better. How you answer this question makes all the difference in the world. So let's ask God for his help. Oh God, we pray, open our eyes. Even if we know the answer to this question on paper, may it become even more real to us as we consider the truth of your inspired word. In Christ's name, amen. So today's question is, is this all? Is this all? This is an attitude that is prevalent in today's culture. Our culture today has increasingly lost faith in God, lost faith in any sort of afterlife, any cosmic realities going on behind the scenes. 
over and again, we are being taught by this culture that what's in front of you, that's everything. Nothing more. Some of the expressions that you've heard or I've heard over the years captures that. Years ago, there was a saying, and I'm, I'm using better words for the sake of where we are, but the saying was like this, life stinks and then you die. Or perhaps more recently, you've heard the phrase YOLO, you only live once, or live in the moment, or que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. And all of these expressions capture this idea of a sort of fatalistic hopelessness beyond this life. You just have this one life, and that's it. It's temporary. This is all we've got. Nothing more. Nothing beyond. In the words of Porky Pig, that's all, folks. But what's wrong with this mentality? I think there are generally two extremes when you think in this way, united by one root cause. And those two extremes are recklessness and despair. The person who believes that this is the only, that this life is all that there is, that there is no God, there is no afterlife, there is no kingdom, there is no eternity, will probably wind up in one of two places. Recklessness or despair. Recklessness. Jesus tells us about this when he gives a parable in Luke chapter 12. He says, he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? See, this, this man that Jesus talks about was living for the moment. He wasn't thinking that there's going to be a judgment. He wasn't thinking about heaven or hell. He wasn't thinking about God above. He was only thinking about himself. And because he was given so many resources, because he was rich, he lived a reckless life, a life that served self. I was reading the story about a man named Irvin McInnes. I've never heard of him, but he was an aspiring rapper, 21 years old. This was years ago during the YOLO craze. And um, he went on Twitter, tweeted about driving drunk at 120 miles per hour. And he tweeted out, quote, and again, I'm saving words for the sake of the audience, quote, drunk going 120, drifting corners, YOLO. You only live once. And I'm sorry to say that Mr. McInnes, along with three other people, died minutes later in a fiery car crash. Now, we may not be so foolish to do that, but when you take away the idea that there is more to life than just what's in front of you, it can lead to reckless behavior. But what about those people who don't have cars? What about those who don't have resources and riches? They, they don't necessarily leave, uh, live life recklessly, but they might go to the other extreme, which is despair. Despair. And this is what I think Job is getting at here. Because remember, Job was a rich man, 
but all of his resources were taken away. So back in our, in our text, chapter 14, 1 to 2, he says, man who was born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. This doesn't sound like a man who enjoyed his family, who can remember the sweet moments of life. This was a man driven to despair. And then here in chapter 30, listen to his words. 19 to 23, he says, God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all the living. Job was just crying out to God that there, there's, no, there's no hope beyond the grave for me. That, that's it. Everything I know has been taken away. See, if you have this attitude that this is all, you will likely find yourself in one of two extremes, recklessness or despair. But both of these attitudes, recklessness and despair, I believe have one thing in common. The thing that they have in common is this. Your outlook on life is dependent on your temporal circumstances. And you may not recognize this, brothers and sisters, but there are parts of your hearts and mine that still need to be redeemed in this area where the temporal circumstances, what I have, what I don't have, what I want, what God has not given me, the conflict I have over here, the trouble I have over there, will begin to dictate your attitude, will begin to rob you of your joy, will try to steal your peace. Because if we're not focused on eternity, but we're only focused on this temporal world, we put ourselves in bondage to our surrounding circumstances. So whether you're the person who has much and you look at this, this perspective and, and it drives you to a reckless abandon of just doing whatever you want, or you're the person who has very little and this perspective drives you to despair, they both share this in common, a bondage to temporal circumstances. They have both answered the question of today's sermon, is this all, with the answer, yes, this is all. Just this one life, 70, 80, 90 years. But they respond differently based upon their circumstances. Well, in our, in our um, study of Scripture, we find this character that we've been looking at, the, the man Job wrestling with this question. What, what I love about Job himself is this, the humanity of this, of this man. He isn't some superstar. He doesn't get everything wrong like his friends do. He gets a lot of things right. But he wrestles. He questions. He agonizes. And with this question, it's the same. But I believe that the book of Job as a whole is written to demonstrate the answer to today's question in bold terms. No, this is not all. There is more to life than this. There is a cosmic battle raging behind the scenes. There is a God in heaven who is ordaining and ruling and doing all things. And there is hope beyond the grave. That's what the book is trying to bring out for you and me 
whether we go through times of suffering or not. And I think the two bookends of this book reveal that to us. In chapters 1 and 2, we find a cosmic scene of God and Satan talking about Job himself. And then in chapter 42, which we'll get to in a few moments, we find Job restored, getting all of his things back. But here we are now in the middle of those two bookends, in the middle of the two scenes that show us that there's hope beyond this life. What do you do with that middle? Because you and I have the privilege to read the book of Job. We can read about what God says to Satan. We can look at the end of the book. We can kind of cheat a little bit and say, okay, how does this book end? But Job can't do that. He's stuck in the middle. So he and his friends must learn. They must learn the hard way about the big picture. And his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they're so fixated on the here and now. But Job wrestles with it. Now remember, this is an Old Testament book. It does not have the spelled out theology that we have in the New Testament. If you're a believer and you've been reading the Bible any amount of years, you know the answer. Jesus tells us about heaven and judgment and rewards and the afterlife and and all of that. And so maybe you think this question is too trivial for you. Put yourself in their sandals. They don't have all this figured out. God's word is progressively revealing the truth. And the Old Testament, just like we talked about a few sermons ago, the retribution principle, in the Old Testament world, they had an incomplete picture of what the afterlife was all about. Incomplete pictures of the reality of life in God's world. You will find in the pre-exilic parts of the Old Testament, this is before Israel went into exile, very little about the afterlife. Very, very little. And then even after the exile, there was more about judgments and rewards, but still not the complete picture we get in the New Testament. Uh, Desmond Alexander says this, the pre-exilic period is dominated by the belief that death as a purely natural phenomenon, marked the end of life. The afterlife, if one can call it that, consisted of a silent existence in Sheol, the realm of the dead, where both righteous and wicked share a common fate. Isolated for eternity from God and the living. So many of the characters in Job were operating under this paradigm. We're all going to Sheol And we're going to be separated from God for all of eternity. It's a pretty hopeless way of living, isn't it? Now, whether the book of Job is pre- or post-exilic is a matter of debate. But it seems that the characters of the story share in that idea. And the striking quality of Job himself is that, unlike his friends, he's curious about the afterlife. He seems to have some glimmer of hope that there is something beyond this temporal life. And it's because of that possibility he's driven to ask these questions. So we look again in chapter 14 and continue now in verse 7. Look what he says. He's comparing man to a tree. The life cycle of a man to the life cycle of a tree. He says, For there is hope for a tree. It will be cut down that it will sprout again. 
and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. So Job looks around God's world and he sees restoration, regeneration, new life. He sees plants that die and come back to life. He says, that's interesting, right? There are, there are living things in God's green earth that die and come back. So he says in verse 7, there's hope for a tree. There's hope for a tree. But what about, what about me? What about man? Is this all there is for me? Well, verse 10, he says, but if a man dies and is laid low, man breathes his last, where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. You see now? There's that despair. The tree comes back to life. Man, as far as I'm aware, doesn't come back. Until the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. That's the realm of the dead. That you would conceal me until your wrath be passed. That you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Now, wait a second. Job is... Maybe he's holding out some hope. Some hope that maybe... God will remember him even after he's dead. And then he asked this eternal question, the question that a lot of people ask. If a man dies, shall he live again? If a man dies, shall he live again? Wouldn't that be awesome if one of your unsaved coworkers or family members came up to you and says that to you? It's like, what an opportunity for the gospel, Right? Job is asking. I see what the tree does, but every man I've ever known, they don't sprout up again. If a man dies, can he come up again? Is that possible? And he goes on to say these words, all the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. What does he mean by that? Well, I'm reading from the ESV. Some of you might have different translations. That word renewal down there in verse 14 could be translated change, release, relief. Notice that Job talks about the days of his service. So here's what Job is doing. He's saying, I'm a conscripted servant. So think about conscription in the army, perhaps, or slavery, servitude. I'm demanded to serve But you know what will keep me going in my service? You know what would keep me from ending my own life? You know what would keep me from failing here? You know what would keep me from, just give me a little bit of hope to continue to press through? The idea that one day in my service, there'll be that relief. There'll be the day where the the captain tells me, you've done your job, now you can go. My renewal, my relief. His hope for the future would help him to endure his present. And so comparing that now to life, he's saying, if there's relief for me in this life, if there's something beyond the grave, if there's something more than this, then all the days of my service, I would wait. I would endure. I would persevere. The words of commentator John Hartley are striking, so I put it in the slide for you to see. Here's what he says. 
It's an Old Testament commentary. Although he has just discounted the possibility of personal resurrection, Job's wish pulls his mind back to this possibility. Renewal means a new vigorous life in a restored body. Job would have left his old diseased body and be given a body full of vitality. And here's here's what struck me as I read this. He said, given this possibility, notice that word possibility. Job is not a theologian. He's not making absolute declarations. He's just saying, maybe there's hope beyond the grave. Maybe I will come back. Maybe God will raise me up. Maybe. And given this possibility, he could endure his present affliction sustained by the vision of the wonderful future that would be his. This possibility, though, is just as hypothetical as being hidden in Sheol. So what is it that keeps Job from such despair that he would end his own life? It's being sustained by the possibility that there's something more. This is the same Job who said this in chapter 19, verse 25 to 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Wow. After my flesh is destroyed, in my skin I will see God. Do you see the wrestling there? I know I'm going to die, but I hold out hope that even while I'm here, I will have a vision of God. My heart faints within me. Job is torn. He is wrestling with this question, is this all or is there something more? What does this tell us, brothers and sisters? It tells us this, that what you believe about eternity will impact how you live every day. Because Job held out a possibility that there's hope beyond the grave, it helped him to endure his present affliction. Well, how much more for us who have the fullness of revelation, who know that there's hope beyond the grave, who know that God raises the dead, should impact how we live every day of our lives. Once you abandon this and say, this is all, Nothing else. Nothing else at all. There's there's no judgment. There's no rewards. There's no God. There's no afterlife. There's no eternity. Just a bunch of molecules floating around, and then you die. Once you abandon to that philosophy, you will not have much to live for. But when you recognize that there's an eternity where there's a restoration and a renewal and there is a hope for a man greater than that of a tree, then you have something to live for. What you believe about eternity will impact how you live each day. The New Testament tells us very clearly life is a vapor. It's a vapor. It appears for a little while and it vanishes away. But what do you make of that vapor depends on what you believe about what happens next. And so Job is wrestling with this question. Is this all? Does death have the last word? Is this life all that there is? For those who have much, should they just live it up until they die? And for those who are suffering, should they be resigned to defeat? Is there anything more than this? I think the overarching story of the book of Job 
answers this question. The overarching story. I want to just review real quick where we were and where we're headed because we're bringing the plane in for a landing. Part one was the most righteous man suffered the greatest losses. Part two was the most righteous man suffers terrible affliction, his health. Part three, three friends come to sit in the ashes with Job. We mentioned during that sermon that that's the one thing they did right. Part four, Job breaks the silence with lament. Part five, Job's friends respond to his plight. Part six, Job responds to his friends' arguments. And this is where we've been for the past three or four sermons. We've been parked right here as we look at what Job says and what Eliphaz says and what Job says and what Bildad says and what Job says and what Zophar says. We spent most of our time in that part of the book. It covers the most length of the book. But there are two more parts, and there are two more sermons, this sermon and next week, and then we're done. But I'm going to do them backwards. Part seven of the story is the Lord speaks to Job. And we've hinted at some of this, we've read some of this, but next week we'll dive into what God says to Job as we wrap up this sermon series. The end of the book the Lord restores Job, is what I want to focus on for the remainder of today's message. That's the other bookend that shows us and shows Job and his friends that there is more to life than just what you see. So let's go to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. I'm going to read the whole thing. Right? The book begins with two chapters of prose, that is, narrative, then it's poetry, 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 poetry. And then we get to chapter 42, and now we're back to prose, a narrative. I'm going to read the whole thing, verses 1 to 6. I'll make a few comments, and then we'll consider them more next week. But you need the whole context, so I'll read the whole thing. Job chapter 42, the Lord restores Job. This is after God speaks to Job. The Lord, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz and the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. When he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And they bred with him in his house. 
And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring, ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuch. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man, full of days. The restoration of Job. It's very important, brothers and sisters, that we see what's happening here. This is not merely a happy ending. If this was a happy ending, it would kind of be a, a bit of a letdown, right? You have to understand the order here. One preacher tells a story about how his wife was out in a crowded area watching their granddaughter. And grandma loves to read stories to her granddaughter and these children's books that all end on a happy note. And no matter what happens in the book, grandma and granddaughter always recognize that everything turns out okay because there's a happy ending. But one day when grandma was watching her granddaughter in a crowded space, and she turned her head for a little bit, and every parent's worst fear, your heart drops, you don't see your child, she doesn't see her granddaughter. And she panics. She can't find her granddaughter. A crowded place. And she calls her husband. I've lost Katie. I don't know where she is. Now, thankfully, after just a few minutes, which probably seemed like an eternity to that grandma, just a few minutes, Katie comes running, Grandma! And Grandma, who's shaking, tightly holds Katie in her arms, holding back tears because she thought she had lost her. But Katie, little girl, hardly stunned at all, says, Don't worry, Grandma. It's okay because it's a happy ending. But does that happy ending undo the grandma's panic? Does it delegitimize her agony and her fears and her pains? Is it okay because it turns out to be a happy ending? What grandma felt in that moment was very real. As the preacher goes on to say that when we look at the restoration of Job, it doesn't undermine the tens of chapters of agony and pain. Job doesn't get new children and think, oh, okay, if I just knew I had new children, I wouldn't worry about my old ones. That's ridiculous. You don't think that even in his joy at the end of his life, he still thinks about the children who died? Their kids aren't that disposable. So the preacher goes on to say, listen, it's not so much a happy ending. It's a new beginning. Job receives back his family but not the same children who died. He receives his riches. He's even twice as rich now. His reputation, his health. But it doesn't delegitimize the pain that he endured. He will always remember that pain. Matter of fact, some people say that the reason it says in this chapter that um, he gives 
It says right there in verse 15, their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. The reason why Job gives the, the daughters an inheritance, which is unusual, only the sons get the inheritance, is a safety net in case something tragic happens to the sons. So Job is, is actually operating in a new way based upon what happened to him before. Just like Jacob will walk with a limp the rest of his life, Job will remember what God had done in his life for all that time. So yes, he has new children, beautiful children, but that doesn't erase the memory of his deceased children. What we've learned about in this book is the human experience we all relate to. And we don't just say something trite to someone who's suffering. Oh, it's all going to work out in the end, so it's okay. If that's the reason for Job's restoration in chapter 42, then the book is at best disappointing and at worst cruel. But God's word is not cruel. What is the main point then, I think, of chapter 42? The main point of Job's restoration is to show who God is and Job's relationship with him. And this is something I hope to bear out more next week as we close our sermon series. I started this book because I thought it would be great for us as a church to have a theology of suffering. I have never preached through the book of Job. I knew, we all know it's about suffering, and so I want to dive into that. But the more I've studied this book, the more I realize it's not so much about suffering as it is about God. This is a book that draws us closer to God, his wisdom, his ways, and his character. And what Job chapter 42 is meant to demonstrate to us isn't so much that if you suffer now, at the end of your life, you're going to get all your stuff back. But it is to say that by his very nature, he is the God who restores all things. He is the God who restores all things. There's so much in this book that tells us who God is. The God who made the stars, the God who rules the seas, the God who draws near. And today, I want you to see that you and I worship and serve a God who is in the restoration business. He restores all things. It is part of his very being. He wants to restore, and he will restore. He may not always restore the way we want him to or in our timing, but he is the God who restores all things. In the prophet Joel, it says in chapter 2, Be glad, O children of Zion. And rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be filled with grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. And one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. This is God speaking to the children of Israel. Judgment that they deserved. But God says when, when they come back to me, they will be restored. I will restore all those years, all those things eaten by that terrible great locust. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people, people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. My people shall never again be put to shame. This is 
your God. Again and again, He restores, He redeems, He reconciles, He makes new. You understand the the story of the Old Testament? It's very simple. It's a cycle. God redeems His people. He tells His people, here's how to live under my rule. God's people disobey God. They go after our idols. God warns them, don't do that. Judgment's coming. They say, no, we don't want to listen. Judgment comes. They get destroyed. They get held captive. Then they finally cry out to God. And because He's the God who restores, He restores them. But if He wasn't the God who restores... He would forget about them. He would wipe them out, never again to be in his presence. But he says here in the prophet Joel, my people shall never again be put to shame because he is the God who restores all things. And so when we look at Job chapter 42, and we see a man who lost so much, get everything back at the end, I would argue, along with many commentators, that Job's restoration was not in his material blessings. His restoration was a renewed relationship with God. We see that. If I can go back there real quick, because chapter 42 begins, if you look at verse 5 and 6, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job resigns himself to the will of God without any clue that in just a few moments God would restore him. Job's relationship with God is not based upon what God can give him. God gives him all of this later almost as a bonus. Say, here's what, I I want to give this to you. I love you. But Job's relationship with God is not predicated upon getting stuff. It's upon knowing who God is. As Eric Ortland says in his book, Suffering Wisely and Well, what is amazing about this passage is that Job expresses his utter comfort in God before he is restored. Job's restoration does not begin until chapter 42, verse 10. But in verse 6, he is on the ash heap, still casting sidelong glances at the graves of his children, still covered in sores, Before Job's life changes back into one of blessing, Job is utterly and entirely comforted in God alone. So we'll look at this more next week, but Job chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, Job's repentance before God is surrendering to God. He's not repenting for sins that Eliphaz told him. You must repent of all the sins. He's not repenting of that. He's repenting of how he talked about God through his pain. And he says, now my eyes have seen you. This is the climax of the book. And all that other stuff, the kids and the money and the, and the health, that's just a bonus. Suffering Christians are not restricted to merely waiting for some happy future. God is able to draw near to you as an all-sufficient Savior and warrior and friend while you are still sitting in the ashes. We'll speak more about that next week. But to suffice to say, Job was restored in his relationship to God, and then God proved that he is for Job by giving him everything back and then some. I don't know if you've ever been tempted to say to God, God, if you'll just give me A, B, or C, if I could just get this job, then I will serve you. 
If you can just answer this request, then if I can just get, right? We almost bargain with God. There's no hint of that in chapter 42. Job is resigned to God first, and then God blesses him with abundance. And so as we bring the plane for a landing, we come to the ending of the book of Job. We end on this high note that the God who gives and takes away loves to give to his people. Is this all? Is this all? No. There is so much more. And Job's restoration in chapter 42 is just a glimpse of what's to come. And that brings us to what's my favorite part of every sermon in Job, is how this points us to the gospel. How does Job's restoration point you and me as believers in Christ to the amazing message of the gospel? He's the God who restores all things. And he does this especially in Christ. Recall Job's question. Chapter 14. He says, If a man dies, shall he live again? I love what Alexander McLaren says. He says, Job's question waited long for an answer. Weary centuries rolled away, but at last the doubting, almost despairing cry put into the mouth of the man of sorrows of the Old Testament is answered by the man of sorrows of the new. The answer to Job's question is the empty tomb. If a man dies, shall he rise again? Yes. And that's why the Bible tells us, and probably my favorite chapter in the New Testament, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, another word for restored us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, who restores all things, restores everything in Christ. And so if you are not in Christ, you don't have hope for restoration. If you are not in Christ, your relationship with God is still severed. You must be reconciled. And the only way to be reconciled is to be in Christ. Because Christ died and rose again. Those who are in Christ, though they die, shall live again. That is the answer to Job's question. That is what Job 42 points us to. It isn't about the children and the gold. It is about new life. And that's purchased for us by the death and resurrection of Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. God and man restored. And with that restored relationship, we look forward to the restoration of all things. The new heavens and the new earth. It's coming there's so much more than just this one life. And Christ proved that to us by rising triumphant out of the grave. When Jesus rose from the grave, that is not simply a happy ending. It is, like the preacher said earlier, a new beginning. He is the firstborn of the new creation. 
He is the first one in line for the new heavens and the new earth. And his inheritance becomes our inheritance if we are in Christ. And so if you're not in Christ, if you're listening to me in this room right now, or on live stream, or on a recording, 17 years from now, somehow you found this sermon. Listen, this life without God is hopeless. It is a dead end. And it does end in judgment. Because we've sinned and broken God's laws, we must face him as the eternal judge. But the God who restores all things has offered to us restoration in Christ. He's the only way. He's the only door. He's the only truth. He's the only life. Would you come to him today? Would you turn from your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who by his own power came out of the grave so that you too can know that when you die, you also shall live. What was lost in Eden will be restored. And just like in Job's case, where what he was restored with was better than what he came with, the new heavens and the new earth will be even better than the Garden of Eden. This is what that last chapter points us to. But for those of us who believe this, we already came in here believing. We believe in heaven. We believe in God. What's the point here? What does that mean for us now? How does this truth about our current restoration and future restoration help me in my day-to-day struggles, my relationships, my pain, my circumstances? Well, remember, what you believe about eternity will impact how you live each day. And I want to end on three points of application. Because of our restoration, we have the presence of God. Because of our restoration, we have the perseverance of faith. And because of our restoration, we have the perspective of hope. Let me briefly touch on these. The first thing, because you in Christ have been restored to a right relationship with God, you have God's presence. God's presence. The Bible says, um, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your own body. Like we said earlier, Job did not wait until after he got his stuff back to glorify God. Chapter 42 is written in that way on purpose. He worshipped God while he was still covered in sores. He worshipped God while he was still sitting on the ash heap. The place of his mourning was his place of comfort because his eyes have seen God. You and I, by the grace of God, have been restored to a right relationship with him. And by virtue of that, he's given his Holy Spirit to indwell each and every one of us. And so you have the most formidable, the most powerful force in all this universe, God himself living in you because you've been restored, redeemed, forgiven. As stated many times throughout this series, the hardest part of Job's suffering wasn't so much the disease or even the loss of his loved ones, but it was feeling distant from God. While he went through this trial, he could not make sense why God seemed so far away to have abandoned him and turned his back on him. But Jesus Christ brings us near to God. And because we're brought near to God, you can be confident that he is with you even in the midst of your most intense pain. 
Secondly, being restored to God means that we have the perseverance of faith. Perseverance means endurance, the ability to press on and go on. Because we're looking to eternity. We're looking to the new heavens and the new earth. We're looking to what's beyond all the things we can see. Look, if you just live in the news and just live on social media and just live on all the circumstances at your job or in your family, it will drive you to despair. But there's more to it, right? There's more beyond this, and it gives us that opportunity and incentive to go and persevere. The Bible refers to Job as steadfast in the book of of James. It should say James 5.11. We consider those who are blessed and remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Why was he steadfast? Why was he able to persevere? Well, same reason why Jesus, our greatest example, was, right? Hebrews 12 tells us that when Jesus was on the cross, he was looking for the joy set before him. So while he was hanging on the cross, suffocating and bleeding and being mocked and jeered, he wasn't only looking at those people with whom he had pity on, by the way. He was looking for the joy set before him, beyond, knowing that he would rise again, knowing that he would be triumphant, knowing that he would be seated at the right hand of God, and knowing that he would bring many sons to glory. He looked beyond his present circumstance, and it gave him the endurance to suffer. The soldier who knows that victory is coming has the faith to endure to the end. The student who knows that his hard work and studies will yield good grades has the faith to endure the hours of work, the projects, the lectures. Even now, as your pastor is talking on and on, you have hopefully the encouragement to endure this sermon because you know the Word of God planted deep and you will yield results. The hardworking team sees the championship. The farmer sees the crops in his mind's eye when he plants the seeds. What are you looking at? Where is your vision? The Bible says where there is no vision, the people perish. Are you looking beyond just the immediate? And so, brothers and sisters, why bother enduring the hardship of discipling people who are difficult to disciple, who take one step forward and two steps back unless you see in your mind's eye the fruit of a sanctified life? Why press on as a church plant from five years ago, right before COVID, in the midst of a politically charged environment with many people moving away from the city because we see the results of the word preached? And so I encourage you, press on with your struggles, endure, persevere, see in your mind's eye what God will do with word-centered ministry. Press on in the children's ministry. There will be days where those who work in children's ministry will feel like, these kids aren't paying attention to me. Same with nursing homes, homeless shelters, places we go to preach the gospel, go out to the streets, hand out 2,000, design door hangers, hand out 2,000 of them, and nobody comes. Press on. Press on. Because you see that seeds will be planted and in God's timing, He will water the seeds. Press on with the Portuguese Bible study. Every other week, maybe, you don't see anyone else, but two families show up to the Portuguese Bible study. Press on. Because going consistently and opening up the Word of God and preaching the Word of God is doing a work 
and will one day yield more results. And be so content with God, so content with his word, that even if nobody comes to the Portuguese Bible study, even if nobody responds to a door hanger, even if no children seem to pay attention, even if our church shrinks instead of grows, that we're so content in the Lord that we have the faith to press on. Persevere because you know that God will one day restore all things for his glory. And finally, may this truth give you and me a perspective of hope. If there's any people in this world that should be people of hope, it's Christians. We live in such a cynical, sarcastic society, don't we? And there's a lot to be cynical about, a lot to be untrusting about. I get it. But that shouldn't characterize us. We are people of hope because we answer this question, is this all, with a different answer than most people we know. No, it's not all. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming. And so as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is being renewed, uh, wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And look at verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And if you're, if you're really suffering, you might take issue with Paul. Who are you to call my affliction light and momentary? It is heavy and it is ongoing. I don't think he's undermining that. I think what he's saying is, but compared to the eternal weight of glory, that's a speck. It's just a speck. Because the eternal weight of glory is beyond all comparison. As we look not, verse 18, to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means temporary. And the things that are unseen are eternal. Are you living for the temporary? Or do you have eternity in your mind? He says the same thing in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever you're going through, and I hope you understand that none of what I'm saying is to trivialize, delegitimize, or, or just be passive about real struggles that you have. They are real. Job's agony shows us they are real. There can be grief and mourning and sorrow, all real, real tears. But sometimes you have to compare those things with what God has in store for us and have an eternal perspective. And when you get that eternal perspective, then there's no room for a defeatist, cynical, YOLO sort of reckless attitude because our perspective is one of hope. We must have realistic expectations, brothers and sisters. What the world is offering you will never satisfy. I couldn't get over this recent news story. I don't know if you saw this about the Willy Wonka experience in Glasgow, Scotland. If you did not, you need to look it up. This um, was supposed to be a family fun gathering in Glasgow. They had rented out a warehouse. And the website, if you look at the website, it's beautiful. AI-generated images, colorful AI-generated descriptions of come away to a magical land flowing with chocolate and Willy Wonka and... And so parents paid uh, 
roughly $45 per ticket, and brought their kids there. And I think I have, yeah. So the picture on the left is what you see on the website. And the picture on the right is one of the many pictures that you see when you actually get to the experience. They were sold a bag of goods. It's kind of like the meme you see online, expectation versus reality. The expectation is this wonderful, magical place. And the reality is a dirty warehouse that um, even inspired some parents to call the cops, demand refunds, children are crying. The actors who were hired are now speaking out against what the organizers did to recruit them to act. And um, I love what one news story said. It said, the disappointment must have been immeasurable. Children were promised a wild ride through Candyland, but were given a handful of jelly beans and a quarter cup of lemonade. Yes, you read that right. This is like worse than, you know, you see the picture of the Whopper on the poster, and then you open up the Whopper at Burger King, and you're like, this is not what's in the picture at all. Um, This is false advertisement at its worst. This is a letdown. This is, you know, sin looks good, but really it's ugly. But brothers and sisters, this will not happen to us. When God tells us there's a new heavens and a new earth coming, there will be no false advertisements. You will not want a refund. You will want to stay there forever. And what God tells us about the life to come doesn't even tell the whole story. You see, this is one story where the expectations were not met. But for you and me, our expectations will be exceeded in glory. Jesus told this to his disciples. He said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. There is a restoration awaiting you. So live for eternity. If you're here today and you're stagnant in your walk, discontent, waiting on the Lord, look around you. This is not all. There are many things in the background going on, and God called you into his plan. You have a part to play, and he is preparing a place for you. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Isn't it awesome when you're able to tell a child, we're going somewhere special, And then you take them and they're in awe the first time they ever see a skyscraper or an amusement park or a movie that they love. There's satisfaction for both the parent and the child. Well, God wants to share these beautiful experiences with his people. He has given us all things to enjoy. A new heaven and new earth is coming. For the God who restores all things has promised to us a restored world where the lion lays down with the lamb where they will learn war no more, where there will be no sickness or pain, no sin, no death, where there is no more night, for God himself will be their light. There will be no need for a refund. There will be no more tears. God makes all things new, and we will be fully reconciled to him. Our expectations will be exceeded, and it will take all of eternity to exhaust the riches of what is coming. And how can I stand here and tell you that this is going to happen. 
because Christ has answered Job's question. If a man dies, shall he live again? Yes, because Christ is risen. The empty tomb says yes, and everyone in Christ, though they die, shall live again. And so, brothers and sisters, take heart. The God who restores all things gives us hope. He gives meaning to life. He gives a reason to live. He puts this world into perspective. It's not all there is. Live with eternity in view. Prioritize the kingdom of God over the kingdom of man. And any little kingdom that you've set up in your heart, a better one is coming. So persevere. Endure the trial. Keep your eyes on the restorer. And as John Newton said at the end of Amazing Grace, when we've been there for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Amen.